Amen. Well, thank you, worship team. And I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis 12. Genesis 12. And just by way of uh, maybe an on-ramp, if you're new to this church and, and maybe you're new to Advent altogether, uh, we mentioned last week, but I'll remind you that Advent is from the Latin word that means coming. And so during Advent, we're, we're kind of doing two things. First, we're celebrating the fact that our God has come to us. Uh, so we sang the word Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. And so when we look to the manger and we see Jesus, what we're seeing is God with us. He has come to us. But then we're also looking forward with hope and anticipation because God said he's, he's coming again. Uh, Jesus is going to return. Uh, this isn't on the screen, but if I could just read you uh, one of the glorious promises that we'll frequently read in, in funerals. It's from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. The Apostle Paul says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, he says, encourage one another with these words. And so this promise of his second coming is to be an encouragement for us and a joy for us and a hope for us. But it is a, it's a promise that we're waiting for in anticipation, which means we need faith to lay hold of it. And so Advent is a time for our faith to be bolstered, for us to be encouraged as we remember that our God is a promise keeper. That's the title for our series. And what we're doing in this series is we are moving through the Old Testament and considering some of the, the great overarching promises. And listen, if you were to read the Old Testament and you were to stop as it comes to a close and not move into the new, you would find all of these threads of promise that are introduced, but that they're kind of left individually dangling. That's why we've got all these threads in our our stage decor here, is that in the Old Testament, you have all these threads of promise and you're wondering, what will God do with these? You know, how many people is he going to have to send to meet all these promises? How, How will it work out? And then as you turn into the New Testament and you read the Gospel, so much of the New Testament is the apostles picking up all of these threads of Old Testament promise, bringing them together and showing how they point forward to and find their fulfillment in Jesus. That He is the fulfillment of these promises. And so we're just walking through the Old Testament, and by God's grace, I want to help you to see the way that Jesus is the fulfillment of these promises. Last week we started at an appropriate place to start. We started at the beginning. We started in the Garden of Eden, and we we heard the first promise, and we found it in Genesis 3.15. And the first promise was peculiar because it wasn't made to Adam, and it wasn't made to Eve. It was actually made to our enemy, the devil. God promised him, after he deceived Eve and led us into sin and ruin and caused us to lose all that God had intended for us, God promised to our enemy, and he said, a child is going to be born, and he is going to strike your head. A champion is coming who's going to set my people free. That's the the promise. And as we saw last week, that sets the stage for how we read the Bible now. Moving forward from Genesis 3.15, we're looking for that champion. And we're looking with great anticipation. Unfortunately, as we continue to read through the Bible, this promise looks like it's it's in a a, a tricky place. For example, you know, as we move through chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6 in Genesis... If you were to draw it on a graph, it would probably look like this. A descent into absolute chaos and ruin. So much so that by Genesis 6, a measly three chapters after the promise, God is sending a flood to wipe the slate clean. We've gotten it so wrong. You think, well, okay, well, 
perhaps that will solve the problem. He saves righteous Noah and his family, and so we think in Genesis 6, perhaps now we're going to be back on track, but, but Noah steps off the boat, and he picks up where we left off, and he gets drunk, and he's naked, and it's a mess. And, and the descent continues, and, and that's the story until we reach Genesis 12, our text for this morning. One of the things I'll tell you that I appreciate more and more as the years go by, as, I, as a Bible reader, just as, as one of your brothers in Christ who reads the Bible, I appreciate that it's honest. The, the Bible, as you read it, it's not as if, it's not like a fairy tale where you get this, and maybe some of you here today think it is a fairy tale. Have you read it? It's not like a fairy tale at all. It, it, it feels more like a mirror. And as you read the Bible, you see an accurate picture of the world and an accurate picture of, of yourself. And in it, you see the, you see the glory of the, what the world should be. And, and you see the, the brokenness of what it's become. And in the same way, we see the glory of what God made us to be. And the brokenness of what we've become. Listen, if you're here today, you know you were made in the image of God. You're an eternal creature. You were made to create and cultivate and, and made to have relationships and to live and love and worship. You were made to live forever. And yet, because of sin, that's been distorted in your life. And, and you, I would suggest to you today that you know that to be true. When you look down deep and you, and you really think, there's something inside of you that is distorted, something that's broken. And when you look up at the world, you see the same thing. Beauty and brokenness. There, beauty and brokenness here. And as you read the Bible, you see that on every page, and you're wondering, what is the solution? How do we fix this? Isn't that the grand question? How do we fix the world, and how do we fix this broken heart of mine? And the Bible tells us, well, you need a divine intervention. God made you, therefore God needs to be the one to fix you. God made this, therefore God needs to be the one to fix this. And glory of glories, he promises that he will. And so we're walking through these promises today. These promises that God is going to intervene, that God is going to set it right. And that promise that we found in Genesis 3.15 is here picked up and further fleshed out in Genesis 12. So we're, we're going to look there now. I hope you've turned there in your Bible to Genesis 12. I, we're going to actually start in chapter 11, verse 27. We're going to read all the way to Genesis 12, verse 3. Hear now God's holy, inspired, inerrant, living and active word to us today. Now, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. And Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife, Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is the word of the Lord. 
Thanks be to God. So again, we've kind of set the stage. Let me remind you, if you're reading through Genesis, it has been a, a steep and steady decline into sin and ruin. But here in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God speaks. God speaks, and he delivers this glorious promise. Did you see it? This promise that through Abram, somehow, someway, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. See, we're living under curse. That's fresh on our minds. That just happened in Genesis 3. We're living under curse, but somehow through this ordinary man, God is going to, instead of curse, he's going to bless. That's, that's the promise. It's a, it's a beautiful promise. It's a difficult promise. Now, Abram was living in the same dark world that we're living in today. And as beautiful as that promise was, it must have been difficult for Abram to believe when God spoke to him and said what he would do. And yet, as we read the text, we see that Abram laid hold of that promise with all of his might. And so this morning, we're going to do two things. We're going to consider the promise. That's where we're going to land today. But before we do, I think it would actually be worth our time to take a moment and look closely at this story and consider the faith that Abram demonstrated. In Hebrews 11, Abraham is lifted up as an example of faith. You know, we've been talking about how Advent... It talks about the first coming, but it also is a time for us to look forward to the second coming. The challenge is when you're looking forward, sometimes that can be really hard to do. Some of you here today, I suspect, are living in really difficult situations. Some of you here today, I suspect, it was everything that you could do to drag yourself to church. Because you knew that you should come and you knew you should worship, but everything inside of you was feeling like, I just want to throw in the towel. It's hard to live in faith. It's hard to believe in the promise for what is to come when everything around you looks like darkness. It was hard for Abram too. And yet he set a brilliant example for us to follow. So let's consider his example first and foremost. First we want to learn a lesson in faith. And I want to pull out just two lessons for us before we jump ahead to the promise. So in our passage this morning, the God of the universe graciously speaks to an ordinary man. And this ordinary man responds in faith. If you want to break it down into one quick summary, that's the summary of our story this morning. And I would argue that's the summary of your life this morning. If you're here today and you're a Christian, isn't that the story of your life? God spoke. God called an an ordinary woman, an, an ordinary man. And that ordinary person responded to the Lord in faith. That's the story of our lives. And as we read this story in Abraham, we're meant, to, we're meant to learn some things about ourselves. And maybe as I say that, you feel yourself, kind of, you're not so sure how to, what to do with that. But it's, it's true. You know, we can read the Bible and we can learn about ourselves. We, we can hold it up as if in a mirror. And, and we can learn about the way that God relates to us and the way that we should respond to him. It's not inappropriate. As we read, we're not just looking for you know, objective facts that we can add to our minds. Though we look for those and they're there, but we're also learning subjective realities about how we we live and how we respond. And in Hebrews 11, we're told that when we read about Abraham, we should be learning lessons about faith. So let's, let's learn some. I want to pull out two. First, this passage teaches us that faith begins with God's call. Look again at verse 1. It says, now the Lord said to Abram. And of course, as we're reading, it'd be very easy to fly right past that without thinking anything of it. But it's, it's actually an amazing, fascinating detail. Abram did not call out to God. God called out to Abram. We sang the, 
the lyrics. I wish I had them written down in, the, in that previous song. But um, talking about how in my, I'm living in my sin, and then, and then God called to me in my sin. I can't think of the line. Can you? You, don't, you can't remember. I should have wrote it down. As we sang it, I thought, that's exactly right. And the reason why, as I sing that, it comes to life in my heart is because that is the story, isn't it? I was was in my sin, I was in my mess, and then God graciously called out to me. And that's what we see in the story. He calls out to Abraham. There's nothing in the text that indicates that Abram's looking for God. Nothing in the text that suggests that Abram is calling out to God. No, Abram's he's living his life just like the rest of his family. He's going about his ordinary business, but then the Lord speaks, and everything changes. It's the turning point in Abram's story. And I would argue it's the turning point in each and every one of our stories. You know, I've had the pleasure of hearing so many of your testimonies. And it's a wonderful thing. You know, when you really look back and you deal honestly with what happened in your life, you're living in sin, and I was, and you're living in, in rebellion and ruin, and then somehow, some way, God, whether it's through a friend who speaks into your life or or maybe you find yourself sitting at a funeral and you start asking questions you've never asked before. Or, or maybe you remember something that your grandmother taught you when you, were, when you were a little boy. But suddenly, God's call breaks into your world. And isn't it amazing what happens? In that moment, all of the things in your life that took all of your attention, all of the stresses, all of the, all of the joys, all the things that were everything to you, in that moment, they become like background noise. And the only thing that matters is the voice of the Lord as he calls to you. If you're a Christian, can't you remember that? The, the craziest thing. Everything just fades to the background, and, and you're, you hear the Lord, and he's calling you. You weren't looking for him. You weren't. But he was looking for you. And he called out to you. The Apostle Paul so beautifully says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So the Bible goes a step further. The Apostle Paul says, not only were you not looking, you were dead. Dead people aren't looking. Dead people aren't doing anything. You were spiritually dead, and yet God in His grace, He went first. And He brought you to life. He called your name. He called you out of the tomb like Lazarus. It's the consistent biblical pattern. And, And it undermines every temptation that we might have in ourselves to boast. You know, you read through the New Testament and it's so clear. If you're here today and you're a Christian, it's not because you were the smart one who, who asked the right questions or the determined one or, or, or the one who, you know, who is wiser than the rest. No, it's you were dead just like everybody else. But God, in His grace, called out to you. He calls to us before we call to Him. We see that in this passage. We also see, we're still in the same point, we also see that He calls out to unlikely people. The story of Abram, if you're, if you're reading through the text, if you go back to the beginning of, of chapter 11, the story of Abram comes after a long list of the descendants of Shem, a list that includes names such as Eber, Eber, I'm not sure, Ru, Sarug. You ever heard of these men? You heard their stories? Me neither. I haven't. And Abram ought to be one more obscure name in an obscure list of the descendants of Shem that none of us really recognize. And yet, in chapter 12, verse 1, God calls out to Abram. You know, why doesn't Genesis 12, 1 begin with the words, now the Lord said to Eber? There's nothing in the text to suggest that Abram was any more remarkable than the generations listed before him. 
In fact, what we know of Abram at this point, all we really know about him and his wife Sarai, is that she's barren. They can't bear children. That's interesting because when we consider the promise in verse 2 and 3, so much of the promise is contingent upon their ability to have children. So not only is Abram just some ordinary man in this list, he's also a man who's extraordinarily underqualified from the calling. And yet, God chooses him. You remember when we were in public school and we used to pick our teams for sports and uh, we'd line up? I was never picked first, but I was never picked last. Some, some of us were picked last, and so it's a really good illustration. But it, you know when you're looking for the most powerful, the most extraordinary, the most impressive people when you're on the playground and you're picking your team. But it's interesting, when you read the Bible, it's almost like God picks his team exactly the opposite. You know, all the things that we value, they're not the things that he's looking for. 1 Corinthians 1, for example, says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, I, I was encouraged by this as I reflected on it this week. You know, do you ever feel small or insignificant or embarrassing, Christian? Do you ever find yourself in a, for maybe a day or a week or a month, perhaps a year, just feeling so unlovable, so unspectacular, so unworthy. Do you ever entertain the thought that perhaps somehow you duped God? You know, he, he saw you perhaps in a moment of, of spectacular triumph and he chose you, but, but now he's got buyer's remorse because he sees you for who you are and he's stuck with you. You ever feel that? I feel that all the time, right? And yet he called me and he called you. Out of the darkness, I heard his voice. Like Abraham, like, like all the people who came before us and those who will come after us, because this is the way that God does it. He calls out to ordinary, unextraordinary people who are ill-equipped for the assignment. He calls out to us, and he sends us on his mission. And that bolsters my faith. And as we talk about faith this morning, it reminds me that it doesn't matter how dark it gets out there, or how weak I feel in here, what matters is the God who called me. And he does not change. And he's a promise keeper. That's the first thing we learn about faith, that faith begins with God's call. But second, before we move on, I want to point out from this passage that faith is always costly. When God's call broke into Abram's world, it turned everything upside down in his life. So look again at verse 1. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. Now, if, if you look ahead to verse 4, we find out that Abram is 75 years old when he receives his call. 75. I won't get you to raise your hand, but maybe we have some 75-year-olds here. By 75, you're pretty, you're pretty settled, I would suspect. I feel pretty settled at 33. Abram is, is settled here. Now, he, it's not as if he's never moved before. We saw in, at the end of chapter 11 that he moved with his family from Cush to Haran. So he's moved before. But to move at 75, this is a big ordeal. Not only that, this time he is to leave his family. He's to leave his kindred, his father's house. 
And, and more than that, as we read closely, we, you know, you ask the question, well, where is he to move to? The text says he is to move to the place, the land that I will show you. Which means you're going somewhere that, that's undetermined. You, you're, you're stepping out from everything that you've known, every, the place where you've got all of your comfort and your whole system and your support structure, and God says, I, Abram, I want you to, to now step away from all of that. And where am I going, God? To, to the place that I'm going to show you. One commentator notes, Abram is to give up all that he holds dearest for an unknown land promised by God. And that is a wonderful portrait of faith, isn't it? The author of the Hebrews certainly thinks so. So in Hebrews 11, which I've alluded to now, what's often referred to as the hall of faith, and you can turn there in your Bibles if you'd like, it's near the end of your New Testament. Hebrews 11, it's it's often referred to as the hall of faith, and Abraham takes up over a quarter of the chapter, which means that the author of the Hebrews looked at Abraham's life and he said, if you want to learn about faith, you need to look closely at this story. And in verse 8, for example, we read, by faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out, not knowing where he was going. Abram believed God, so much so that he left everything behind in faith that God would keep his promise. And that's faith, the Bible says. Faith lets go of of the trivial and the temporary and the comfortable because it believes that what God is promising is greater. If you want to follow the Lord in faith, it will inevitably inevitably require letting go of something. And the great missionary Jim Elliott, who was martyred for his faith, he famously said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So the call of faith is not a call to safety, it's not a call to ease. On the contrary, I've never met a Christian whose coming to faith did not include a frightening and costly step. You know, you think about Jesus And in the Gospels, if you read through the Gospels, so many times Jesus would find himself having accumulated a crowd. And he's got a whole crowd of people following him. And you think, well done, Jesus. You know, you've done it. You've got your followers. But Jesus, looking out, could see their hearts. And he knew that they were following him because they they wanted bread. Because they knew that he could multiply the bread and the fish. They were following him because they wanted the healing. They, They knew the things that he could do. But so many times we see Jesus almost kind of cutting the group in half. He would say extraordinary things. He'd look at a man who loved his wealth and he'd say, if you want to follow me, you'll need to sell everything that you have and give to the poor. And the rich young ruler goes away sad. You know, but at other times when he issues this call to costly faith, we see people jumping in with both feet. Zacchaeus is is called to repay the people that he swindled, and he does. The disciples are called to leave behind their boats and their trades, and they do. And And yet, Notice that each time Jesus is issuing a costly call. And I'll tell you, one of the things when I'm talking to people and they're saying, hey, you know, I, I, think, I, want, I think I want to be a follower of Jesus. One of the signals that shows me that they're serious is that you can see that they're beginning to wrestle with the cost. To follow Jesus means to take up your cross. And there is always inevitably real cost involved. And so I take it very seriously when somebody says, you know, I want to follow Jesus, and they follow it with, but I think it's going to have implications on this relationship that I'm in, and on this living arrangement, and on this habit, and on this comfort. 
and on these finances. You know, that's the person who you can tell, like the Lord is working because faith is always costly. It's always costly. And yet, can I tell you, it is always worth it. Because as we see in this story and, and across all the stories, it is always rewarded. God never invites us into a bad deal. And that brings us to the heart of our passage this morning, which is the promise. I want to invite you to, to look at this promise. We've been talking about faith because faith matters. Faith is the way that we lay hold of the promises. But now let's talk about the thing itself. What is this promise that Abram is laying hold of? Let's look now in verses 2 to 3. God says to Abram, And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, if you flip ahead another page in your Bible, we see that God further fills this promise. There's, there's even more to it. So in Genesis 13, beginning in verse 14, God says to Abram, he says, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. And so putting this together, God speaks to this ordinary man, Abram, and he tells him that he's going to give him this land, the land of Canaan, all of it, the promised land. He promises that he's going to make Abram's name great, and that he's going to provide him with offspring that, that cannot be counted, that he's going to be the father of a family that is going to be beyond numbering. And he promises that, that when people interact with Abram, it'll be as if they're interacting with God. Those whom, who bless him will receive blessing. Those who curse him will be cursed. And that ultimately, and this is the beauty of it, that ultimately through Abram, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so at this point, I want to bring your attention back to the promise in Genesis 3.15 because we should be connecting these dots. One commentator observes, Abraham is presented here as a new Adam, and the seed of Abraham as a second Adam, a new humanity. And now as we read this, we see that God's plan of sending a champion, of setting things right, it's, it's, it started with Adam, like through Adam, Adam was supposed to be the representative for God, so that this promise was coming through humanity, but then humanity fell. Well, now in, in chapter 12, we see it narrowing down, and now we see this promise of blessing is going to come through a through a family. Disclaimer, it's going to narrow down even further, and next week we're going to see that it narrows down, it's going to come through a king. And that will bring us to Christmas. I suspect you know how this series ends, being a Christmas series as it is. But we see this line of promise narrowing in. This promise from Genesis 3.15, the promise that a child will be born who will crush our enemy, is being picked up and it's being expanded upon in this passage. Not only will this champion conquer our enemy, Genesis 12 teaches us, but through him all the nations will be blessed, which sounds an awful lot like a reversal of the curse, which is exactly what we need. That's exciting news. Just 
That is exciting news. If you're reading and you get to Genesis 12, you're thinking, praise God, we're going to reverse the curse. The champion's coming through Abraham. This is fantastic. And yet, if you continue to read the story of Abraham's life, you see that the fulfillment of this promise in his life leaves something to be desired. In fact, by the time that Abraham dies in Genesis 25, this lofty promise that he left his home and family for seems like an overstatement at best and dishonesty at worst. Abraham died with seven sons, which is impressive, but not quite the sand on the seashore. Abraham died, and the only land in Canaan that he ever possessed was the tomb in Hebron that he and Sarah were buried in. So if the promise, this promise that through Abraham all the nations would be blessed, if this promise was limited to Abraham's lifetime and what he could observe, then this promise, by all accounts, would seem to have failed. Which, if I get to step back for a moment, is a great reminder for us that God's working on a different timeline than we are. I don't have this written in, but I would imagine that in this room, some of you are, are terribly discouraged because there are things in your life that you anticipated. Perhaps, you know, you took a step of, of faith, a step of obedience, and in your mind you thought, well, this is the right thing to do, therefore I, I will experience, I'll see God's blessing on it. I'll see the fruit from this. But now you find yourself five years in, ten years in, and it feels like life has actually gotten harder after this step of obedience. And you're wondering, was, was this a bad deal? How, how does this work? Can I just remind you, the consistent testimony of Scripture, the way God works, His timeline is not like ours. The blessing is there, but God never promises that we'll receive the, the blessing immediately, that, that we'll get to see all of it in its glory right away. No, that so many times the blessing is for us in the future. And this is one of the reasons why Abram is lifted up as this example of faith. No, it wasn't limited to his lifetime. It was a long game promise, as God's promises often are. A promise that blessing would flow to the world through a descendant of Abraham. So now we, we turn from Genesis 25 and Abraham's died, and now, now our minds are thinking, okay, so somebody through this family is going to be a blessing to the world. And as you read through the Old Testament, you see Abraham has a son Isaac, and Isaac has a son Jacob, and Jacob is, is called Israel, and Israel has 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel, and, and they become a nation, and through them you could say that the world is blessed, right? They're given the law through Moses, and and they walk in obedience to God's commandments sometimes, and sometimes they fall short, but people can look at them, and, and they can see the worship through the priesthood, and they can learn something about God, and there's some kind of blessing that's coming through this family, and yet ultimately, by the time you reach the end of the Old Testament, it just doesn't feel like that was the fulfillment of the promise. All the nations being blessed, I mean, they're, they're living in exile. They're driven out of the land. The temple's destroyed. You, this can't be it until you turn to Matthew 1, verse 1. And with this promise of God's blessing through a seed of Abraham ringing in your ears, you read the very first verse in the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, if you've never read the Old Testament, and you've never thought about what God had previously promised, then, boy, that would sound like just a, a biographical footnote, wouldn't it? It's just an interesting little tidbit walking through his family history. But no, knowing what we know now, having considered what we just considered, Matthew is, is pulling us in and he's saying, listen, listen, your God is keeping his promise. Look close. 
Here he is, the son of Abraham, the one through whom the blessing will come. The Apostle Paul makes the same argument in Galatians 3, where he writes, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and now he's, he's going to teach us. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many. So he's saying, you thought it was, it was just through the nation of Israel, but I'm, I'm zooming you in now. No, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. So he's saying all those glorious promises, they were preparing you, they were zooming in on this one child of Abraham, this one descendant. And so much of the New Testament is spent picking up all of these threads of promise that we've been talking about and applying them to Christ. And this promise is the reason that we sing those beautiful words each Christmas. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow far as the curse is found. Do you see that? So Genesis 12, 1-3 should be coming into your mind from now on whenever you sing those words. He comes to make His blessings flow to the nations. We who should be living under curse instead are going to receive blessing and it's only possible because of Him. Through Jesus, the blessing has been unlocked. But how do we receive the blessing? And this is where I want to conclude this morning. It's an important question. Maybe you're here today and you're well aware that the world is broken. And, and maybe you're well aware that you're broken. And you're excited to hear all this news about this blessing and this champion and, and this Jesus and all that he's done. But the question is, how do you lay hold of that blessing? The Apostle Paul answers that question for us. Listen closely to Galatians 3, 7-9. He says, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham who are engrafted into this family of blessing. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Pause there really quick. Isn't that interesting? The Apostle Paul says, remember that promise you read in Genesis 12, 1-3? He says, you know what that promise was? It was the gospel preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, he says, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. And that brings us back full circle to to why we spent so much time at the beginning considering this lesson of, of faith that Abraham taught us. It's because the promises of God are received, are, are laid hold of by faith. Faith is the way that you lay hold of the blessing. So Jesus is the champion that we've been waiting for. Do you believe that? Jesus has reversed the curse on the world. Do you believe that? You should not receive the blessing of God because you, like me and everyone else in this room, are a sinner who has fallen short of the glory of God. You have sinned. You have broken the commandment, just like Adam and Eve which means that you've been removed from from all the blessing that God had for you. You've been disqualified from it. Because of your sin, you should be under the curse. But as God promised, He has sent His champion. His champion who has come to, to deal a blow to the head of our enemy and to reverse the curse for us. And He has done it by taking all of your sin and my sin, by taking it upon Himself, 
in his obedient body, in his, his perfect person, taking it to the cross and paying for it so that it could be removed. And you lay hold of that blessing by believing. If you look to Jesus and believe that his death is your death, if you look to Jesus and believe that he is paying the price, the penalty for your sin, that he has absorbed your curse, the Apostle Paul writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Faith then looks to Christ, looks to the cross, and says, He has died for my sin. So I repent. I confess my sin. I lay it down. And I know that at that cross, Jesus has paid for it. And because Jesus has taken my sin, I will receive the blessing. I will receive the life. I'm in right relationship with God. Faith believes that. Even when all of the evidence in your life seems to point in the contrary direction, faith looks to Christ and says, no, I believe it because he said it. He said I'm forgiven. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And so through him, I am going to the Father. I believe it. That's faith. And I want to be clear this morning that the call to faith is just as costly today as it was for Abraham. He had to leave the only life he'd ever known if he was going to follow this call. And so too will you. His life was filled with wonders. It really was. You know, when Abraham's son Isaac was born, that was a miracle. And so there were all these beautiful foretastes of heaven in Abraham's life. And yet there were so many moments of faith-defying obstacles and setbacks. Many days when almost every bit of evidence in Abraham's life would have suggested that God's promise had failed. And that's why he's lifted up as an example for us. In Hebrews 11, we're told, By faith, he, that's Abraham, went to live in a land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. He was looking forward. Somewhere along the line, Abraham came to understand that God's promise was about more than physical land and biological children in the here and now. Somewhere along the line, Abraham developed an appetite and an expectation for another world. For a blessing that was eternal rather than temporary. And so in Hebrews eleven thirteen, we read, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. Greeted, greeted them from afar. Coming to a close here. You know, I, I started this morning by reading that passage from Thessalonians about how one day Christ will return. And that's Advent. That's what we're preparing for. That's what we're celebrating. One day he'll return. The king, the champion, the one who's going to reverse the curse, that which he started when he first came to us, he will bring to completion. That day is coming, God's word says. But there are moments when we're going to feel like, is it actually coming? Like, is it really coming? Because I've been watching my wife, and she's been sick for years, and I'm, I'm grieving, and it's hard. And I've been praying for my children, and they're, they're straying from the Lord, and it's so hard. And I've been trying to follow the Lord, but I look within myself, and I see that I'm so weak, and I'm so frail, and I fail all the time, and, and everything around me, and everything inside of me is so terribly discouraging. That's called life, isn't it? And yet faith 
follows the example of Abraham and acknowledges that I'm a stranger and I'm an exile on the earth, but I'm looking forward, having seen and greeted them from afar. I'm looking forward. So I would encourage you today, if you're feeling like your faith is about this big, you know, one of the things that we can do to bolster our faith is we can revisit the manger. <laughs> revisit the manger. Can you remember this morning that there were thousands of years of longing, thousands of years of promises that were left dangling, and a people who were at times driven into exile, at times were watching their, their loved ones suffer, at times were shaking their fist at God, at times were wondering, what, all of these promises that you've given to us, what, what do they come to? What are you doing? And, and remember that 2,000 years ago, uh, the cry of a baby broke through the darkness of the night in a little town called Bethlehem. And God proved himself to be the promise keeper. And he entered into our darkness. And he came to an ordinary people just like us so that we could be saved, so that the curse could be reversed. And Christ lived for us the perfect life. And then Christ died for us the atoning death. And Christ said, I'm going to return. He's a promise keeper. He has kept his promise and he will keep his promise. And so we look forward in faith. And one last note, as we look forward and from time to time, and maybe even in this moment right now, you wonder, but why so long? It is so hard. Why the delay? Why, just, why can't he just come? Why do we have to wait? Can I just read one last passage to you? It's from 2 Peter 3, 8 to 9. This is a passage about how there were people in the, in the church who were mocking the church. They were saying, look at you guys waiting for the promise of God. Why is it so long in coming? People laughing. You actually believe this nonsense? 2,000 years later? What a joke. Peter says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Now listen to this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Do you know the delay is mercy? It's mercy. The delay is hard, but the delay is mercy. You know, I'm here today, and, and I heard his call, but I'll tell you, if, if he had come, if Christ had returned, if the trumpet had sounded 15 years ago, he would have come at a time when I was not ready. He would have come at a time when my heart was hard to him, at a time when I had not in faith laid hold of the blessing, and I would have been removed from him forever. I would have missed it. I am so glad that he delayed these 15 years so that I could be here today looking out to you and saying, he is so good and glorious and worthy of your praise. And for so many of us here today, we're here today because of the delay. We're here today because he had not yet returned. He left this window for us to hear the call and to respond in faith. And as you struggle and you suffer, just know that there are people, there are neighbors, there are co-workers, there are family members. And if he were to return right now, they're not ready. But his delay is mercy. And so as we wait and as we long and as we groan in our impatience, can, can that also motivate us to go tell it on the mountain, over the hills and everywhere, that Jesus Christ is born? Would that, would that compel us to go? I mean, maybe there are people even today, you're sitting under the message, you're hearing the call to faith right now. God is calling to you and he's saying, let it all go 
lay hold of me. You think this is something? I have, I have life for you. The call is going forth, and you have an opportunity right now to respond in faith and to receive the blessing. His patience is mercy. And I'll tell you today, it's a call to follow him into uncharted waters, a costly invitation, but the promise of God, the promise of life and blessing and a reversal of the curse and a way home is worth more than anything that you could ever leave behind. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we love you, and we thank you for the the privilege and the opportunity that we have today to gather as your people and to worship you. And Lord, I do thank you for the delay. God, I thank you for your patience, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, that you saw us in the same way that you saw Abram, in the same way that you saw all of these, these people that we read about in the Bible before us. And, there, and it, it wasn't that we were worthy. It wasn't that we were more excellent than the rest. It was just your grace and your mercy and your love that you, you set your affection on us and you opened our eyes and you softened our hearts. God, I pray that we would never stop marveling at the mystery of grace. God, I thank you that as we celebrate this Christmas, that the God of the universe condescended down to be with his people. God, that we would also just celebrate the fact that the God of the universe condescended down to open our eyes and to, to put your spirit in our hearts. God, we love you. And I pray that you would help us today to be a people on mission. The promise is that all the nations would be blessed, which means the promise goes beyond what I've received But now, as a a child of Abraham through faith, I'm supposed to be one who goes forth. That the world should feel the blessing through me and through all of my brothers and sisters in this room. Lord, we're called to be a people who are overflowing because you're a missional God and you overflow to the nations. So God, I pray that you would help us today to become a missional people. And God, that rather rather than grumbling and complaining and feeling discouraged and wallowing, Lord, that we would take that, what often feels like a discontentment, and that we would let, it, let that unsettling move us out on mission and move us out in mercy to the world. God, so we pray all of this. We can't do it in our own strength. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to. Lord, I pray that you would mobilize us and give us all that we need. And Lord, if there's anyone here today who doesn't know you, I pray that by your grace, not because of any sermon that was preached, but by the power of your spirit through your word, that you would open eyes and soften hearts today. I pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Worship team, would you come forward?